tell me about the habits you mentioned that you want to change. Okay, so before we started recording, I was telling Sharice, there's a few habits I want to rewire. Part of them are like bad habits, let's say in sports, right? Things that you know you should be doing, but you're not doing it properly, like maybe technical stuff, uh, mental stuff. And then also I was thinking, hey, wouldn't it be good if I was less adverse to marketing myself yeah that would be great that would be extremely helpful to me personally yeah i'm just because i have an apprehension towards it right yeah you do why is that this is making it up a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters i'm sharice poon and my co-host is eugene can we don't always have all the answers but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. You know why? I know exactly why. Okay, it's such tell a, me why. I, I think about it from a very binary standpoint of, I don't know, maybe it's this romantic notion that if you do something, then your belief is that people will just naturally find it because it's good or because it merits it versus me needing to tell you. Except that you and I both know that because of media fragmentation and everyone's <sighs> attention being splintered in a million different places, that that's not the reality. The challenge now is not doing something that is of quality, but the challenge is finding people that will care about it or of interest. I mean, I guess finding those people is one way to put it, but it's like, those people exist. The good work is there. The people who are interested in that good work are also there. But how do those people find out about the work? You know, like, you have to bridge those two things. Uh, if you could rewire your brain that way without the use of any uh, drugs, recreational or otherwise, that'd be... Well, what are you implying here? That'd be great. I think the hard thing that you just have to confront is that rewiring your brain takes mental discipline and a lot of time. Yeah. I'm pretty good at building habits. Habits around things that are neutral. Like things I have no aversion to, but I just integrate into my life. But if I have an aversion to it, it's obviously much difficult because you're starting behind the eight ball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... You have to first mentally convince yourself that this is a thing that you don't have an aversion to. Like, yep. work yourself around that. It's like, we all know that exercise is good for us. So then it's just like a physical discipline, right? Like, yep. making time to exercise. But those things that are hard are like what you've described, where it's like, we have this logical to our mind, like, argument as to like, why we shouldn't do this thing. Like, for example, I'm really bad at delegating because I my mind goes I already know how to do this I already know how to do it well this will save me time from having to explain to someone else and ask them to do that but obviously that cuts you know me out of being part of a team and also like keeps me and other people from like having a learning experience that comes from like collaborating together so that's yep. my mental habit I'm trying to work myself out of. Oh, this sounds really bad, but I don't, I think maybe you just aren't broken yet. Because once you break, then you re realize that, hey, I need help. <laughs> I swear to God. Yo, it's, you just need to get broken. You need to like, it's like a meme where you're at, sitting at your desk and someone dumps like, like a wheelbarrow full of paper onto your desk. Or maybe it's because I do some amount of delegation. So I've always kept myself from that like complete breaking point. But I need that total breaking point in order to like improve at delegating. Should we get started? Yeah, sure. Whose subject is first? I can go first. So my subject this week is the role of small indie music venues and clubs as it pertains to the music ecosystem. And this topic is really about what happens when you have this vibrant or i guess once vibrant uh series of musical venues 
And what do you lose when they disappear? They shut down. Obviously, now is a moment in time where a lot of small mom and pop businesses or independent businesses are facing the reality that they might go under or close and never come back. And there's two specific stories that I'm referencing that that discuss this topic. Uh, one is from the New York Times and written by uh, Ben Cesario. And the other one is a piece in the New Yorker by Jim Derogatis. Both share the common theme of highlighting how clubs are a critical part of the music ecosystem in fostering talent and providing almost like this on-ramp for them to grow and to mature into bigger acts. And what I'm going to do is it's probably easier if I just look at each piece from an individual standpoint because they actually touch upon different things. Um, And then I'll kind of meet back at the end. In the New York Times article, it highlights how artists have moved to live streaming during these difficult times. But beyond that being the obvious, we've obviously discussed this. It also focuses how, in light of this, a lot of mom and pop shops don't have the deep pockets to continue paying their bills. So while artists do have some sort of avenue, whether it's half like a half-baked avenue to go live stream themselves, on the flip side, there is no equivalent necessarily for a mom and pop shop. And it's the same as for retail or restaurants where if they're paying an ongoing rent and you can't hold anything in that space, then they're at a loss immediately. As Dana Frank, owner of First Avenue in Minneapolis, puts it, this is an existential crisis. Independent venues have no financial backstop. We do not have corporate parents. There are no financial resources we can turn to. And this is followed up by Wesley Schultz of the Alt Folk Group, the Lumineers, who says that there will be devastating impact from the loss of these venues, saying, these clubs are where you cut your teeth and really develop who you are as an artist. If you took those away, there's no bridge between starting off and ending up somewhere else. Uh, and I'll just continue onwards, because actually the, the notes part, I think, is more to, to set the scene. And I actually want to just discuss the role of these sort of cultural on-ramps in a broader perspective. Sure. So in the New Yorker piece, they look a bit more at the economic impact of these small music venues. Here's a stat from Niva Spokeswoman, which stands for the National Independent Venue Association, uh, Audrey Fix Schaefer, who says that for every $1 spent on a ticket in a small music venue, an additional $12 are spent on dining, shopping, and parking in the vicinity, which is actually a pretty impressive stat. Yeah, yeah. And I think this was in the New York Times article as well, like the independent venue owners making an argument to the government that they're important for general economic reasons. Like it's Mm -hmm. not just a music specific culture related reason that they need to survive, but that they're part of the entire city's continuing economy. Yeah. And one of the last bits is a bit about the creative value loss when not having physical venues. And it's a quote by Belly drummer James Wetzel, who says that virtual rehearsals weren't even close to playing in person and that as a band, you rely heavily on those moments to not just grow up as a group, but to feel connected to that sense of community. I think it's crucial not just for the growth of our band, but for getting connected with other groups, learning about what they're doing and finding inspiration and motivation from them. So naturally, when you don't have this sort of congregation of people like, you know, over the course of, I don't know, like a four hour evening at a, at a club, then you actually very much lose something that is i guess almost like a an energy or a fuel to keep you going because i think that as an independent artist there's actually a lot of challenges that go into making music and finding a way to navigate those waters or you could say it's just definitely a part of their creative process like playing live audiences contributes to them being able to continue to write and make new music they don't just do that in a vacuum I was actually kind of curious about some of the big bands that had made their breaks via small clubs, or at least their first performances, right? It was actually quite hard to find the information, but I just pulled what I could in you know, a few, of like 50 minutes of research. So the Beatles performed at the Cavern Club in Liverpool, England on February 9th, 1961. The Clash performed at the Black Swan Pub in Sheffield on July 4th, 1976 which unfortunately now is temporarily closed because of coronavirus. I don't know if it's a long-term thing. It might just be for now. Mm. And then I also came across this article from 2000 by Carol Cooper, who spoke about The Fever, a club in the South Bronx who helped provide a platform for hip-hop pioneers like Curtis Blow, Grandmaster Flash. It also ended up launching its own music label. 
which I think is kind of a smart move. If you have the platform you kind of own, yeah, called the supply chain, right? Yeah, I you mean, I think talent. what Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers said, the quote that you read, where he says, there's no bridge between starting off and ending up somewhere else without those venues makes a lot of sense. You know, like those big auditoriums are going to be able to keep existing. They have other ways to, um, su- you know, supply those financial supply themselves financially but you know how does a emerging music act go from like rehearsing in their garage to making it to the auditorium it's like only through these independent venues for me my, my interest is that it's actually so important for these to exist because right now you see such a strong consolidation at the top end and there was actually a discussion in the the making discord about this very topic about how media just like maybe venues only cater to the high end right people that are already established people that don't really need another opportunity yeah yeah. just furthering cement the status of those at the top i look back on this from my own experience and thinking the evolution of you know when we worked at hypebeast the bar to entry back then which i'm not saying the bar to entry is low at a independent venue but i also think that the philosophy is different Hypebeast, maybe back in the day, was more about discovering new brands and providing them an opportunity. And now it's less about that because it's more about serving what you know works. And that's sort of the nice thing around independent venues is that their positioning is different. They're not a massive 20,000 person arena that has a particular financial goal that needs to be met. Like there's, I would almost argue, very little creative consideration that goes into venue selection because it's almost economic first it's like hey can this oh fill- you mean the big auditorium can i sell twenty thousand seats okay. here right so i wasn't clear there which ones you meant versus like if i go to a small club it's more about does this place fit my personal will it give me a chance and does it and do the promoters and the club owners fit the narrative or philosophy of allowing people to try and have an opportunity to explore and to develop themselves. The word that comes to mind for me is risk. And smaller venues, they can take on bigger risks because doing one show that was with an emerging artist could be like a huge break for everyone involved, or it could be like a low level risk, right? Versus like the large auditorium. But then also in the situation of the pandemic, like they become the most at risk places because their their sustainability has always been very like month to month and they're dependent on like this very constant mm-hmm. ongoing nature of things yeah i don't mm-hmm. know i don't know what's next for small independent yeah. venues it's a really difficult situation because you know something else i think those articles mention is how they're deemed like last in line in terms of essentialness for reopening the experience of musicians also could be extended yeah. to like comedians as well right i think that's another thing that that's a real i mean this article is about music but really it's about all stage performances <laughs> in my mind like i i used to go to quite a yeah. lot of live music i go less now i mean obviously now the last three months but also less in the last two years but i still used to see a lot of stage plays right like go to small theaters and the same mm-hmm. sort of things apply in that conversation. It's just, it's a real bummer because like it requires a live audience. I don't know if I'm being naive in saying that, but I feel like that's where these articles are coming from. And for me, when I think about stage plays, it's like that same thing where it's a type of art that requires the performers to be in front of a live audience. We've seen this too is, what does it mean when you have people that are front and center and have made that deliberate decision to get off their ass and show up in person, right? That's something we discuss a lot is just the type of situation created when people are committed. And I think that a musical act in a live setting is actually somewhat of a commitment. It costs you probably some sort of money. It costs you time, effort, to get there. I actually did uh, read, you know, you mentioned comedians. I had read an article about 
comedy in this time where there is actually an opportunity for them virtually because they're able to just like really quickly mm -hmm. produce new material and like test it live no matter how large or small that audience is and for some comics like this works really well and that kind of makes sense to me because a comedy show unless you do a lot of physical comedy doesn't require as much of like a space but you know one of these artists said it as well like how do you practice as a band when you're not physically in the same place together that just seems extremely difficult but why did you pick this piece eugene i'm just really interested in fostering next generation and or seeing how to create a healthy ecosystem because i think if you only rely on one side or the other then let's put it this way podcasting when it started was arguably too far to the left on being on the independent side right when in the first wave there was no real monetization you know stats around listeners etc and as it matured it ended up going to a more stable position and i think that just by virtue of podcasting now you'll probably end up somewhere in the middle and i think media for better or worse also did that where in the beginning maybe pre-google adsense you couldn't really run a business around it but now that you've seen it there's actually nothing stopping someone from going and starting their own website tomorrow or today or yesterday. And I think it's really important that you allow yourself to create these opportunities and these lanes for people to progress because I forget which artist it was. It might've been J. Cole where there were moments in time where he was performing to 10 people, right? And look who he's performing to now. And if those opportunities for him to perform never existed, then he wouldn't be where he is now. I was just looking something up because, you know, you were talking about opportunity and I'm about to say something that's like on the plus side of the music industry, but I don't want to try to like detract from these like indie venue owners who are obviously really hard up and have difficulty also like satisfying the requirements for grants. But what I was going to say is that there have been two live stream events that are music focused recently that I think of. One is Asia Rising, which was put together by 88 Rising, and the other is Lion's Share, which was put together with the Healthcare Education Project, uh, raising funds for the American Immigration Council. And I think Lion's Share was like a completely new organization that literally just created itself like in the last month or two or whenever they started planning this. And they were both music events, like just lineups of musicians both streaming on I want to say twitch and youtube and i i actually think that those were successful like they it's a different sort of proposition from the indie music venues that we've been talking about but like those two events allowed musicians from all over the globe to gather together to be in this event at the same concurrently as a lineup which might not be able to happen physically and featured way more i would say mm. like smaller lesser known artists so they weren't like headliner mm -hmm. names i mean some of the names were big but like you get what i mean like not those twenty thousand people auditorium names the obviously this is good for musicians this is not great for venues because the venues are not involved at all right and i'm not saying it's a replacement it's just the adaptation like in this moment so in talking about like supporting yeah. the ecosystem it's i think an eye on both things you know like there is opportunity in virtual that i think extends beyond the fact that we can't gather physically you know like i don't think it's just a contingency plan i think there are benefits from it you know convenience um ability to reach a wider audience that might not be able to afford physical experiences, ability to connect people across the globe. However, there is obviously a spot for physical venues that this virtual cannot replace, which is like the things we've talked about, tapping into local economies, taking risks, those the way physical is part of the creative process. So both sides. I've been monitoring it, just like just taking mental notes as to if and when the situation will return to back to normal. I mean, notwithstanding whether or not the clubs reopen, right? More on the basis that 
under what circumstances will people go back out to clubs? And I think once safety is established, it should be fine. I mean, we've seen it in Hong Kong. I always hate to use Hong Kong because it's a pretty atypical case in the grand scheme of things, but it's just interesting to look at Hong Kong and how it's, call it, you know, the, the, the weekend crowd have reacted in the face of having safety, right? Because people are still going out in droves because there's, uh, let's call it, you know, 99.9%. But Eugene, I think you're losing sight. Like Hong Kong is so atypical, several reasons. One is like the case count never went high. I don't even know, remember what it's at right now, like 1,200 total. Yeah, like around 1,000. Yeah, like a thousand total. Like Our under deaths are still maybe? like in the single digits. There's no trauma related to the virus. But like in North America and Europe, where there's a lot of trauma related to the fact that like loads of cases, loads of deaths, so many people who have friends or friends of friends who are essential workers, like that is going to influence even at a point where it's like good health and safety to go out, whether they want to be in crowds. No, I don't discount the PTSD, but I do think that people forget quickly. And on top of that, I think regardless, I think that the the science is less a determinant of your psychology, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think people necessarily look and decide based off of statistics whether they make a decision on any given day. So in my, in my eyes, the way I look at it is that if it does, the PTSD could potentially be mitigated by virtue of the psychological belief that I think my forecast, if I had to say like my, what my outlook is speaking specifically about music ecosystem is that virtual will continue to exist and thrive more than it would have if the pandemic had not happened. That musicians or producers have mm -hmm. found opportunities there that are interesting enough to them to keep those going. Obviously, like physical venues will reopen mm -hmm. and they will continue doing what they were doing previously with like adjustments for a while, at least in terms of like health and safety. But I think it would, I mean, this is a question for, you know, our friend Sherry Hu over at Water and Music who would have a much better prediction on this. Just think physical and virtual will continue in tandem. I think there's different metrics to success. I think if you have 20 people show up to a physical venue for a performance, that might be considered average. But if you have 20 people show up to a digital event, like how do you, how do you compare what is success in both avenues? On the digital side, we, what we've experienced is that there's just so much stuff going on well, the that thing is that like if you think it all about gets it lost physical right? events you were limited to only looking at what was happening in hong kong so obviously your options were narrow slash for everyone physical events you immediately if it wasn't in your local vicinity you didn't think about it as like an event to consider and i don't actually think that like sure you could use like oversaturation to describe virtual events in the last couple of months but it's also just because you can tune into a virtual event that is hosted you know quotation marks by anywhere in the world at any point in the world so obviously it feels like there's a lot because now the entire world's virtual events are open to you it's almost like you need a filter for location mm -hmm. again for like virtual events being hosted by Hong Kong companies or something like that to give you like that narrower scope that you do when you do physical yeah. events, like when you're filtering. There was something I appreciated from the New York Times article that you didn't mention, which was venues that decided to do something else entirely with their space. So deciding to use the space as a food delivery hub. I thought that was really clever. So it's like maybe temporarily. Yeah. You have to completely step out of your industry in order to survive enough to like resume again. There have been a few live performance type gigs that have resumed, like sports, right? Like in Germany, the Bundesliga started back up where they basically don't play in front of any fans. I think South Korea's league started up even earlier. And I wonder if that is the in-between and what I mean by in between is that 
while you do miss some of this sort of social aspect of everyone being together, you don't lose at least on the quality of the performative aspect. So like maybe the in-between is bands playing in more well-produced venues yeah. versus in their home. You- so I don't know if there that actually has value if you're you actually going to move the performing needle. performing in venues that are well-produced to be streamed virtually. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's room for that. Also, what's interesting that you've just brought to mind is that maybe for a period of time, physical events are just really exclusive because of the limitation on audience size, which is not a terrible thing. You know, it's like really both audience and producers having to think harder about like, who is this for? And do I want to be here? We definitely lose a bit when we let one thing fall to the wayside because they're also interlinked. So that whole argument about people go to a particular neighborhood for a music venue and all the stuff in the periphery that happens. You know, you're going to lose out on that. And I don't know if people recognize, because they always say that like, oh, we have the Super Bowl or we have the World Cup and it will bring X number of dollars into the country or city because every person spends as much. Think about Tokyo's loss for this summer's Olympics. I mean, they're probably going to lose money. Just anyways, going yeah. off of your point. So Fair point. All right, moving on. My subject today is kind of a two-parter, at least comes from two articles. It's really one subject. The first article is called The New Model Media Star is Famous Only to You, and it was published in the New York Times. The author is Ben Smith. It starts by talking about this service called Cameo, which I had never heard of until reading this article. Cameo is a service that allows you to buy short videos from minor celebrities. For example, you could, yes, customize videos. Custom videos. Your request, specifically. Like, you get a direct what this video is. So, for example, you could get a Twitter joke told by Chuck Norris for $229.99 if you wanted. There are much lower price points as well. There's, like, you could get a inspirational speech from an Olympic triathlete for $15. And, and like Eugene said, they're not generic. Like they actually film these for you. So Ben Smith writes, Cameo is on its face a service that allows housebound idiots to blow money on silly shoutouts. Seen another way, however, it's a new model media company sitting at the intersection of a set of powerful trends that are accelerating in the present crisis. And the reason I'm quoting that is because that's basically the point of this subject, is that this moment in time in the pandemic, slash considering all of the things that were happening in media leading up to this moment in time, have created an opportunity for different models of content production and consumption. So the New York Times references Lee Jin, who is an author and well, I don't know what she does actually, besides being an author. Do you? You sent me this link. Oh, she's uh actually author wouldn't even be her. Which call you said it this was in the New York Times? Yeah, the New York Times references Lee Jin, who is a former partner at the venture capital firm Anderson Horowitz. Lee Jin also wrote the other article that I wanted to talk about in my subject today, she's yeah. written about the landscape of the passion economy where tools are rising to monetize individuality, as she puts it. So for example, because those were a lot of big words, that's Shopify or Udemy or Patreon or Substack. Tools that allow individuals to get income from producing content, get income directly from people. You know, and that replaces advertising as the major source of media revenue. So as mainstream business models shut down, as we've seen with mass media company layoffs, too many to discuss, uh, people are going out to use these tools to work things out independently. So to give a specific anecdote, 
Emily Atkin, who writes a climate newsletter, which I actually read, called Heated, is 11th on Substack's ranking of paid newsletters. And she said she was on track to gross 175,000 US this year from more than 2,500 subscribers. And then she pays minimal costs. And she only has like one other employee that helps her out, like a research assistant. So essentially, media companies aren't mm -hmm. the ones in charge anymore in this model. Individuals are those in charge. And media is really the service. So one thing that I thought was interesting about Ben Smith's article in particular was that he ends it by saying, you know, there's like bad and good out of coming out of this movement. It's this movement is not like something you could just say is like totally positive or totally negative. So on the negative side or on the con side, this is further media fragmentation, you know, exacerbating that problem that we described at the top of this podcast where you're making something good and someone might be interested in it. But how do they even hear about you? And also, this fragmentation mm -hmm. can sort of cement what he, what he calls celebrity culture, but really what I think of is, is like, it's also like influencer culture, like independent, celebrating independent individuals, which has two, is a coin with two sides, right? Like on one side, it's dangerous to elevate a single voice so much, but on the other side, you know, you're making way for independent voices that traditional legacy media companies don't listen to or amplify and also on the positive this at this moment pandemic mm -hmm. you know passion economy is providing a source of income for those without jobs i think i picked this yep. subject um well i picked the new york times article because it was a easy read and used a lot of examples that i think myself and people listening would understand it just kind of encapsulates what we've probably already been observing, you know, the make in discord second time referring to it on this podcast, but they've been talking a lot about business and media and where journalism is going. So I think this is, this is becoming obvious to people who are just like regularly reading or producing content on their own. And then Lee Jin's newsletter, which, you sent me the link to is a real like more in-depth dive it's so thorough and it takes it's super thorough yeah more brain power to get through but it's worth it i think because it talks about like passion economy as a theory and disruption theory and how those two like come together i don't know if i should really get into it now though it's a little bit long i think maybe you can talk more about the effects of what will happen to media under these circumstances like what changes if this becomes the way okay. that we fund media because i think what what you're seeing right now is the biggest most interesting thing is the lack of consolidated messaging like it already started before this but it'll get even worse under these conditions because and that's another good or bad thing i think that's where the debate lies i'll give a quick conclusion of legion's piece i think it really deserves reading i think that However, I try to walk people through it is not going to be a sufficient enough explanation because it is really made to be read and to be understood that way. But fast forwarding, where she talks about passion economy in relation to disruption theory and what that means moving forward, is that essentially these new technologies and business models allow individual people to get economic value from their creative skills and passions where they had previously been unable mm -hmm. to do that due to you know legacy companies intermediaries and the existing landscape and to say that in even more simpler mm -hmm. terms is like the dismantling of media production and consumption as we've known it over the last 10 years further disruption of that, further dismantling, more direct from producer to consumer, and many more of those connections where every person is a producer and every person is a consumer. What do you think happens when there's no concentrated way of communication for the entirety of a society? I think it's... Is that good or bad? I think it can be dangerous when we get down to things like science and health 
because those are not really the things that you want to have individuals determining who they trust on those subjects. There are many things that's okay for you to decide who you trust and like to curate your reading feed based off of like your own judgment. But I think as we have learned in the last couple of months, when it comes to like global health, you really need to have the same message. Like that really needs to be consistent. Otherwise, everyone is in danger. And like, I probably would not have said that like six months ago. Like I probably wouldn't have given you that same answer. But I think that's just like so obvious right now. Yeah, the thing that's also really important is that you see what happens when there yeah. isn't trustworthy media or messaging. And I think you've seen it in certain places where yeah. the government is not trusted, right? And then it it fragments and it, it further uh, disconnects people from one another. So I think that mass media obviously is sort of this dirty word because there's usually an ulterior motive, but there is value in in the ability for everyone to be tuned in onto the safe wavelength. Yeah. And also when when there is mass media, we can all be critical of it together. We're all looking at the same thing and do, I'm not saying that mass media is immediately trustworthy, but at least we're all receiving the same information and then we can Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah be critical and fact check it together. But if everyone is subscribed to like a different newsletter, then there's no way for me to like fact check what you're reading. Like, if you just came to me one day and said, actually, I think injecting Lysol is, like, the way to get rid of the virus, I would have, like, no idea where you're coming from, like, where that, where you reached a conclusion on that. I couldn't respond and say, oh, like, is this from that news segment? Like, did you know X, Y, Z? On the other hand, I obviously have to say that like, and I've said it already, I think it's clear, like this does allow for independent creators who put in a lot of work to get income and to get direct audiences, which is great for independent creators and for mm. that general landscape of creativity and new voices. But yeah, I mean, I just can't not think about the danger of everyone being siloed further there's just so much opportunity for like bad actors fake information conspiracies like i guess what's interesting is that two things that are happening here or several things anyways it's more that the cameos of the world are now f creating a sustainable business model kind of probably what lee jin talks about in terms of your ability to now fund your passions right that was i think that's a big big shift within the passion economy is that the tools now are all there for you. Um, like, for example, we use Patreon. Like, there's so many things that are yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, this is directly related to Megan. The other flip side is, if this exists, if people continue to spend time connected to topics of leisure and interest, does that distract them from mainstream media anyways? This is probably like I don't I don't even know if it's worth talking about or even it's such a far out belief that like because there's so many opportunities for passion projects to now become passion businesses that will suck up more and more of our mm -hmm. time because perhaps on the flip side before the quality of content within uh just any sort of passion topic was significantly lower because it didn't have this type of direct consumer relationship like any ad based media business has typically in the digital world been of lower quality unless you're of a legacy publisher type position yeah. right hum 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 i think that people are getting more and more used to directly interacting with the content they're consuming in smaller audiences and like maybe there is better training now like people are better able to curate and select what they are paying attention to understanding that like their money that they put towards sources is finite and that their attention is finite and so like this is me being optimistic that people 
are actually becoming better at filtering for themselves because of this passionate economy. You know, better than in the previous landscape where, like, there equally as much content existed and it was all free and paid for by ads, and people had to decide what they read or they let like Facebook and Instagram decide what they read. So on the other hand, like、mm. people making the intentional decision to like subscribe to newsletters, to pay for newsletters, and for people like us, like Macon, like that should be a good change. Yeah, it's not like fake news and conspiracy theories don't already exist for free anywhere on the online. So, but it's also not like those people can't also find a way to support themselves through these same tools. Oh yeah, yeah. But I, I guess what I'm saying、yeah. is like these tools don't doesn't mean that the content changes. It's just like delivered in a different medium to like a more selective audience. I guess though, what it does mean is that people who commit to these different sources become more and more further committed. So, like, if you were a conspiracy theorist and you engaged in like a newsletter that you paid five dollars a month for, like that is a difficult hole you're to ever drag you out of. But maybe mine is like a maybe I'm just being paranoid. What I did like was the title of the New York Times piece. The new model media star is famous only to you, which suggests that whoever is well known and famous, like I think for you, you you're probably much more into the world of illustration and art and design, right? Than yourself, yeah, sure. I I would say so, yeah, for sure, right? There's going to be someone in your world that is a celebrity that doesn't cross over into my world. Yeah, I mean. The the other topic I thought about picking for today, which I haven't mentioned because you know we can only talk for X amount of time and people will listen to us, is the pandemic is changing how human beings think about status. And it was published in Fast Company, published by S. A. Applin. It's basically on that subject of like we now all are each of us giving status differently. It's no longer those same players for each person. So the same as like our media is no longer shared, our media sources are no longer shared. The individuals that we consider to be important and significant and influential are very different. And a concrete、mm. example would be like it again, making Discord when CC talked about Gia Tolentino, and that like just hit all the marks for me because that's someone that I rank really highly. But then other people in the Discord were like, oh, like. Maybe we should look this up. That was me specifically. Yeah, I don't want to call you out there. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, concrete example of what you're talking about. The two unifying themes between our first topic around music and this one is just how these barriers to entry inherently create a better experience. But advertising is about reducing barriers to entry and trying to serve as many people as possible, right? Yeah. Like those are the big fundamental differences, and you see what happens when you do one or the other. Just like two more things I wanted to share from Legion, I'm just going to put this idea out there. We don't have to discuss it, and people can look it up. But one thing that she said, which was new to me in like the phrasing, was that prime disruption happens when what she calls non-production meets non-consumption. So like people are producing where there wasn't production before, and people are consuming where there wasn't consumption before. And she says that passion economy and Disruption theory like meets at this moment in time where people are doing exactly that. There's a production of things that、mm-hmm. didn't exist. There's a consumption of things that didn't exist. So I liked、mm-hmm. the way that she put that. And one more thing I liked the way that she put, which I wrote down, was there's a shift in competition from breadth and volume to depth and value, which I think about when I think about what Macon offers. Is that we're not competing on those first two things, breadth and volume, and that we can compete by being, you know, providing depth and value. Yeah, and that was always sort of a concern for us. I think knowing we didn't have as many resources, that quantity would always be an issue. Yeah, I, I can read that specific bit. I like it. She says, for instance, millions of users turn to ad-driven social media platforms like Twitter and Reddit to stay informed about news and to find interesting content. The value proposition to consumers is the breadth of topics and the cost free, but increasingly, creators with loyal followings are creating their own independent offerings, ranging from paid courses to niche communities to vertical social networks. With the basis of competition shifting to curated content and community, trust in a particular creator, and alignment to specific topics. So, like I read that and I think about Macon, 
And I think about like remembering that that's what Megan provides and that we can't compete on those other things and that we also don't want to, you know, like this is what we're, we're choosing to offer. I think it's pretty fair. I, I do wonder what happens if, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's like, what happens if you follow 10 people and all 10 people end up going behind some sort of Patreon model where 90% of their content is unavailable, right? Like, will that also spur some sort of backlash and or will that shift culture in a different way? Well, it is, we haven't talked about accessibility. We haven't talked about whether, you know, like this shift to paying producers directly locks out people who can't afford it in a certain way versus providing free content. But then, you know, free is obviously, like we've said, like paid for third parties, like advertisers. So And our attention. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, every question we ever ask about the future is like, I don't actually know. This would actually be the perfect time to make a Patreon plug. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we set up the entire subject so that we could make a Patreon plug. Knowing what you know about the overall landscape right now, is there anything in this suite of tools that is missing for these creators slash, I guess, passion economy pursuers? Weirdly, the first thing that came to mind for me was like better global payment options, but that's such a boring answer. I think... For me, it's probably, it's it's interesting because it is exactly what we talked about at the beginning. It's like just better marketing tools. Oh. Right? The actual process of creating marketing assets, it's quite time consuming. It really is. That That's the one thing I would probably be like, hey, is there a way that- It really is. Things can be I mean, fixed a or- lot of these platforms like will bundle things or promote things independently, like- you know, Anchor has a homepage that features specific podcasts. That's true for all of these services. But marketing still goes back to those mainstream media platforms, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And the services people are using are not necessarily immediately integrated. So all of these individual producers have to do their own marketing legwork on those platforms. I think there's, there's probably two things that I would look at. It's number one, bundling. Because you're yeah, right, that that doesn't exist right now. If Macon wanted to bundle itself with five other like-minded publishers that we think our demographic would derive value, there is no sort of easy way to do that. Or if it was bundled across industries. So Macon bundled with an e-commerce platform. Yeah, it could be anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a great way of putting it. And then the other one is maybe some way for... I feel like this might exist already, but let's say hypothetically, like we've obviously slagged off ads for the majority of this segment, second half a segment, but there's still some sort of value in advertising, right? When it's served to the right person. But if you as a creator are unavailable to put up the money for it, is there a way where you could, it's almost like a loan, but not really, but let's say that Patreon will just take their their cut off the top of all things that you end up uh, converting so that there's less of a financial burden. So maybe there's still a baseline like, hey, put down, you know, 20 bucks to serve an ad. And then, but the by virtue of having Patreon and their teams involved, any sort of new patrons you get would just take a, they would just take a skim off the top more than usual. To pay for the yeah, service. Yeah, I mean, I know, like you said, we slagged off ads, but really we meant a specific type of ads. You know, like banner ads is the type where we mostly were referring to. But if we talk about working with companies in a way where independent producers, you know, also benefit, like there are still ways to work with companies to, like in a model that is that works better than display ads, essentially. Like, I don't think, I actually think that readers, consumers also like to know about companies as well and to like see that we talk a lot about brands, you know, on this podcast yep. and like making as well. There's, you know, recently we published a piece on Gin Lane slash pattern brands. There's no reason why there can't be some sort of working situation like 
pattern brands make in Patreon. I, I mean, I'm literally just brainstorming right now, but I just think that can that can exist. Have you downloaded Cameo? No. The fact that I downloaded Quibi for our last episode was like really me doing full full research there. I did not download Cameo. I should have paid for something. I should have paid for a video for you. That'd be there so must be funny. some like I don't know some retired FC coach that you like that I could get like a motivational speech from. FC being football, of course. Wait, did you download Cameo? Yeah, I downloaded it like a long, long time ago. I never paid for a video, but I was just really curious. I'm kind of bad for this because I usually see something like, oh, this. It, in some ways, you feel kind of sad because a celebrity you know is like doing a video for ten bucks, but then you soon realize that the business validates itself. So then maybe it's okay. Because if anything, it's the value that's put onto the consumer, right? Well, it's the shifting of status, you know? It's funny because you posted on your IG stories that in your second phase of life, you just want to get paid for making cameos. Oh, this is, this FYI, this is my close friends. I didn't post this on oh, my- I'm sorry to put you on blast on this podcast. This is the close friends edition of this episode which is not an existing thing by the way listeners but in reality it's true though eugene like you and that celebrity on cameo can have like the same status that's the world we live in yeah. now you go get your money it's true. someone would pay you ten dollars no one would pay me shit to do a motivational speech no not i not. live for that world i'm gonna email cameo a suggestion i think anyone can just apply oh put in an application this is our like plan C revenue stream. Good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can also do us a huge favor by supporting us on Patreon. Basically, what we incepted with you over the last, I don't know, half an hour about the passion economy. And you can do that via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We do genuinely like hearing from you. Oh, also leave us a voice message. Oh, yeah. You can do that on Anchor. If you would like to leave us a voice message, we will respond live. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.